It is my absolute privilege to be here to share God's word with you this morning. So no surprises by now, but we're going to be in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Yes, Exodus chapter 20. We are going to be continuing our journey through the Ten Commandments this morning. Um, Exodus chapter 20. We started off our journey through the Ten Commandments talking about a guy named Moses. And Moses, if you will remember, was um, saved miraculously from the grip of Pharaoh uh, in his youth. And uh, he was, by God's good providence, brought to the land of uh, Egypt to um, be uh, to be raised as a prince in Egypt. And uh, so Moses was raised as this prince, and then he went out one day and looked upon the suffering of his people Israel, and he saw a uh, Egyptian man uh, oppressing one of his Israelite brothers, and so he looked this way and he looked that way, and nobody was paying attention. And so what did he do? He went out and smote him, and he killed that Egyptian, and he hid his body in the sand. Well, many years later, God would bring Moses back to the land of Egypt to bring God's people out of Egypt, bring them to, um, bring them to freedom and uh, redemption in the land of promise. And before he would do that, God brought them to Mount Sinai. In fact, the Bible says that um, God says, I bore you to myself on eagle's wings. And at Mount Sinai, God gave his law. His law. And there are ten commandments, ten big commandments, and in those ten commandments there are two commandments. Uh, so the, the ten commandments are made up of uh, two big commandments. Everything, uh, all the ten commandments are meant to filter into those commandments. And the first one of those commandments is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first commandment. That's the most important commandment. And that commandment to love God with everything um, is why God tells the Israelites in the first commandment not to have any other gods beside him. And that first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is why God tells the Israelites that they should not make any graven images. And that commandment, that ultimate commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, is why God says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then that commandment of love the Lord your God above all else with all of your being is the basis for why God tells Israel to celebrate the Sabbath to gather on the Sabbath. And so after those first four commandments that are meant to teach us what it means to love God, God gives commandments five through ten. And those, that second set of commandments, the second table of the law, is meant to teach us how to love our brother, how to love our neighbor as ourselves. So the first four commandments teach us what it means to love God, and the second set of commandments teach us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the first one of those commandments was what we talked about last week, which is to honor your father and your mother. And this week, it's about not murdering. It's about not murdering. Um, and this is what God's word says, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It says, you shall not murder. Now, following all of the Ten Commandments, I have showed you other places in, is, in the book of Exodus, directly following the Ten Commandments, where these uh, Ten Commandments are restated and they're applied and they're blown out. And I was going to do that this week, and I came to all those laws that are really about murdering and honoring um, God and, and uh, be, being for Him. And basically all of chapter 21 
is really an expansion of this first commandment. Basically, all of chapter 21 is an expansion of what it means to, uh, to not murder and to cherish life. And so that's about 35 verses. So I'm going to just read a portion of it for you this morning to, to spare you. Um, but this is, here's just to give you a sense of this is what he's talking about. This is what Exodus 21, uh, I'm just going to read 12 through uh, 12 through 16, it says this, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to, to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. You parents, you want to make sure you write that one down, put it above your doorpost. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So what we see in this law, do not murder, is really a call to cherish life. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, God will restate the Ten Commandments as the Israelites are on the cusp of going into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it restates this commandment word for word. Deuteronomy 5, 17, it says, you shall not murder. What exactly it means not to murder and what exactly it means to cherish life is what we'll be talking about this morning. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you um, for the gift of life. God, we thank you that you have put on each one of us your image. And because we are your image bearers, we have a responsibility to uh, dignify other image bearers. God, would you teach us what it means to do that and how to do that this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, as we have walked through the Ten Commandments, I have tried to show you all in different ways how this commandment is an acquaintance and an enemy and a friend. So all of the Ten Commandments are an acquaintance, they're an enemy, and a friend. So when we say the law is an acquaintance, what we mean is it tells us something that is true about all people everywhere, that you see reflections, reverberations, uh, echoes of the law, of all Ten Commandments and all people. It's just, it's true. I mean, you might not like it, but it's true. And there is no law that is easier to show that than this one. Because every single society that has ever existed has needed to have rules about not killing each other to survive. It's kind of a basic foundational building block for society. If people are always killing each other, there's no such thing as a society that survives. Uh, very, uh, very few cultures tolerate um, revenge, and, and very few cultures will, will tolerate someone who kills uh, another. In fact, those are those few times where someone does kill another, maybe in kind of a revenge or a, a blood feud, something like that. Those are still viewed as wrong. So the the call to cherish human life is a universal uh, rule when it comes to human cultures. It's kind of how we all get along. But it is perhaps clearest, I think in the cultures of the West, in the cultures of the West. Those cultures which come out of Western Europe have a more nuanced understanding of what it means to cherish human life than any of the other cultures, I believe. And I say that because in no other culture have you found that, the, uh, that there is a bedrock assumption and a cornerstone and a pillar 
that uh, society would honor every individual right. That every individual has a right to be and to exist and to live. And in the West, we have debates about what exactly those rights are. Does, does that include the right to free speech, the right to religion? Does it include the right to education, to health care? I'm not answering any of that. All I'm saying is, all I am saying is that the, the Western cultures are built upon this assumption that every single individual has human rights. They're inalienable, even in our own uh, Declaration of Independence. It says, we believe that uh, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, here's the thing. If you don't believe in the Bible, you have no reason for believing that. If you don't believe in the Bible, you, don't have, you have no reason. You can say, I value human rights, but if you don't believe in this book, there's no reason to value human rights. If you, if you are an evolutionary atheist, then there is no reason to believe that all people have human rights. There's just no reason for it. Because in evolutionary atheism, it's might makes right. It's, the per- it's whoever can climb up to the top of the food chain. That's the one who calls the shots. And so the weak and the lowly and the marginalized, they have no rights in and of themselves because they can't control themselves. But if you believe in the Bible, if you believe that all men are created by God, endowed with his image, then you believe that all human beings have dignity. That There's something about the Bible which upholds every single individual human being as a unique reflection of the image of God. That's what Scripture says. Now, now, This commandment that we have today is a call to honor that image in each person. This commandment that we have today, not do not murder, is a call to honor that image in each person. So what does this commandment actually say? It's four words in the English, you shall not murder. It's two in the Hebrew, lo rasach. Got to get the in there. The, 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 it's, it's two words, very short, and, and yet there is a world of meaning in it. And what it essentially means is that one individual has no right, is not entitled to take the life or the existence from another person. That every single one of us has a a bound to our existence that we have no right to take the life of another person. That's kind of the boundary that it's setting up. Now, as we saw when it came to Exodus 21, that there are... um, that there's a call for the, the government, the society, there's a call for the government and the society to protect the, the life of individuals by punishing those who break this law. So um, it's from this idea that the society bears the sword, that the government uh, bears the sword, that you, have, uh, you can build a complex theory of uh, just war, that you can build a complex theory of capital punishment, um, whether or not those things are always applied well. I, I don't necessarily need to get bogged down in this morning, although I'm happy to talk about it afterwards if anyone has a question. But for us as individuals, we have no right to take the life of another person. Now, uh, uh, I think a very interesting question to ask is, why? Why can't I take your life, and why can't you take my life? What, why does the Bible tell us that we have no right? Well, what is going on there? Well, 
I think if you look in the book of Genesis, book of Genesis chapter 1, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the reason that you have no right to take my life and I have no right to take your life is because all of us are created in the image of God. And so because life doesn't come from me and because life doesn't come from you, I have no right to take your life and you have no right to take mine. It's a gift of God. God has put on each one of us his image. We believe that God created the world in six days and then at the pinnacle of his creation, at the top of his creation, he put man as his image. And each one of us is called to reflect that image like the moon reflects the light of the sun, so we reflect the glory of God. Each one of us has a call on our life to reflect the image of God. And so because we have all been given this divine mandate to reflect God's image, we have no right to keep another from doing that. And and in fact, if this is a command, do not take the life of another person explicitly. Don't murder another person. It also means that we should work so that the life of others flourishes. See, we read this and we see it as a negative command, and it absolutely is. But the obligation and the responsibility doesn't end with the negative. It's very positive. Don't take the life of another person means work for the flourishing of another person. In fact, we we saw this um, when we were reading through Genesis 21. We saw that it was a sin to kidnap someone and sell them into slavery. In fact, it's a sin for the same reason that killing another person is a sin. Because you don't just have a call not to kill someone. You have a call on your life to make sure the lives of others flourish. This is why Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by, his blo- by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. We all have a call on our life, not just to respect the image of, of man or of God in man, but to reveal it and dignify it. So it's not just a call that you can't kill another person. It's a call on each of our lives to love our neighbor and to lead our neighbor into a life that flourishes. Now, there is no other group of people on the planet that has the pedigree of doing this like the church. The church of Jesus Christ historically wipes any kind of competition out when it comes to caring for our neighbors. Did you know in, in the ancient Roman Empire, when, they wanted, when there was an unwanted baby, they would take the baby and they would put it outside the city gates and wait for the elements or wild animals or somebody else to do something with it. And the Christians would go and they would find these abandoned children and they would take them in and they would raise them as their own. It was the church in the times of the Roman Empire that cared for the prisoners, that cared for the weak, that cared for the oppressed. It was the church of Jesus Christ which stood in the gap when the the Roman Empire was fraying at the ends. It was the church that stepped in to be a stabilizing force. 
In, in the Middle Ages, when the Black Plague was sweeping over Europe and, and people were being abandoned and the rich and the powerful were running to their castles and to their countries and to their, to their uh, dominions to escape from the plagues, it was the church that stepped in to care for the sick and the suffering. It was the church of Jesus Christ that stepped in to care for those who were hurting, for those who were broken. You know, in, in the days of the slave trade, it was evangelical Christians that moved to stop it. It was men like John Newton and William Wilberforce, gospel-preaching, Bible-thumping, Jesus-loving Christians who stepped in and said, this is wrong. Don't let anyone tell you that that is the progressive march of history. That's nonsense. It was the church of Christ that was reading the Bible that said it is wrong to take other human beings and sell them into slavery. It was the church of Jesus Christ that stepped in to pass laws and to change the hearts of men and to change, uh, to change the wills of men in both the United Kingdom and the United States to stop the, the spread of slavery. It was the church that did this. Long before people like MLK and Malcolm X were fighting for civil rights, it was pastors and churches that were working to dignify the impoverished black community. Long before the governments acted in South Africa to end apartheid, it was the churches that were acting to reconcile people of different races. It is the church historically which has worked hard and tirelessly to, to dignify every single image bearer of God. It is the church in places like Europe where immigrants are coming into Europe and they're being isolated and excluded. It's the church that is stepping in to convert them to Christianity and to keep them from being radicalized. It is the church of Jesus Christ which is the, the lead uh, uh, force to dignify mankind and to do good for one another. It's the, the church in our own day and age which is fighting to change the hearts of men as millions and millions of children are being discarded in the abortion industry. It's the church of Christ that is acting to dignify every single image bearer. It's the church of Christ, it's the gospel of Christ that uh, leads members of our own church to uh, give their time and their talent and their energy and their money to help those who are less fortunate in ministries like Dove Harbor and Operation Love. It is the, the gospel of Christ which leads people in our church to be involved in the school system here and to work with people in the school district to help them uh, be risen up out of poverty. It's, it's the gospel of Christ that leads us to love one another. There is no other organization on the face of the planet and no other group of people in all history which has as clear and as stunning a record of elevating mankind as the church of Christ. It is the church of Christ seeking to apply this commandment that has changed the world in innumerable ways for good. And yet for all that, it is an incredibly difficult command to keep. This is an incredibly difficult command to keep. There are ways that we can break this both externally 
and internally. So we break this externally in one of two ways. When we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, when we fail to to do good when our neighbors are in need, when we turn a blind eye to their suffering. So 1 John 3, 16 through 18 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If we turn a blind eye to the suffering and the poverty of others, if we turn a blind eye to the brokenness of others, we are breaking this commandment. And yet it's also a, a breaking this commandment to take others' life from them. So many of you remember the story of Cain and Abel in the Old Testament. Uh, the first story after Adam and Eve fell, it's Cain and Abel, two brothers who have a conflict. If you have brothers, you understand. And the two brothers, they come to offer a sacrifice to God. And the sacrifice of Abel is pleasing to God, and the sacrifice of Cain is not. And Cain is upset, and Cain is furious. And God says to him, why are you upset? You know what is good. You know what is right. Sin is crouching at the door. But you must conquer it. But what does Cain do? He waits till his brother is walking through the field, and then he attacks him and smites him and takes his life from him. So to, we can break this law externally, either by failing to help our brother or sister in need, or we can ta- break this law externally by taking the life of another. Now, when I was in Chicago, when I was living in Chicago, I uh, used to go by this little corner shop all the time, and I would see it. And um, I, I was going by it one day, and it looked like someone had opened up a coffee shop there. So I was like, I, I like coffee. And so I, I went to this coffee shop, and I got into the coffee shop. I opened up the door, and as soon as I opened up the door, I saw, I mean, the, all the blinds were closed. That should have been my first key my first cue that there was something wrong, I saw there was up on the television screen there, there was a horse race on one side. And then I looked down at the tables and they were green felt tables and there were people that were playing with cards on these different tables. And uh, they all looked at me and uh, they all looked up at me like, what is wrong with you? Why are you here? And it became very clear to me very quickly that I had stumbled upon an underground gambling establishment. So I um, did what any naive uh, child from the middle of nowhere would do. I went up to the, to the, the, uh, ca- uh, to the cashier waiter, waitress and I said, do you guys sell coffee? Like I should have just turned around and walked out and uh, she said, no. And I said, okay, thank you. And I walked out. I walked out. Now, uh, just because something looks like a coffee shop on the outside doesn't mean it's actually a coffee shop. It might be an underground gambling establishment. And just because it looks like we're keeping this commandment on the outside doesn't mean that we're keeping it on the inside. See, it's very possible to be philanthropic, to do good for others. It's very possible to, to work for the flourishing of others on the outside. 
and be a murderer on the inside. In fact, 1 John says that Cain was a murderer on the inside long before he was ever a murderer on the outside. 1 John chapter 3 says this, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder, murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. To do good things on the outside, but to hate our brother, hate our neighbor on the inside, is just as much murder. To see someone and to think the worst possible thing about them and to assume the worst thing about their intentions is just as much murder as to take their own life. In fact, to curse someone in our heart is to break this commandment. The book of Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. To curse someone in your heart, to bless them with your lips and to curse them on the inside to say that idiot they don't know what they're talking they just beat them up and, and uh, give into and meditate on all the reasons that you don't like this person that's to break this law in fact if you are a quarrelsome or divisive person that should be a sign to you that you've broken this law in your heart the book of James chapter 4 says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. To desire something that your brother has and to hate him for it makes us a murderer. See, it's not just enough to not kill someone on the outside. It matters how we handle our hearts. This is why the book of Matthew 18 tells the story about a wicked servant. There's this servant who, who owed his master a lot of money. And he came to his master and he said, just give me a little bit more time. I can pay you back. And his master said, it's all, it's all cleared. It's all paid. It's all gone. And his master said, uh, and, and so the servant goes out and he's skipping. And then he sees in the street that there's this man who owes him just a few pennies, just a little bit of money. And he throws him up against the wall and says, if you would have paid me back, I could have paid him back, which isn't true. And the master hears about it. And he takes the first servant and he throws him into jail. And he says this, in the book of Matthew chapter 18, 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive from your heart. To hold back forgiveness, to hold back reconciliation, to hold on to a grudge, to allow a past event to sink into the bottom of your soul like an anchor is to break this commandment. Now, here's the good news. Because I don't think any of us have kept this commandment on those standards. Is that there's one who did. There's one who kept it for us. Jesus Christ obeyed perfectly the command to, do, to be angry and do not sin. He lived his entire life perfectly without killing anyone on the outside or the inside. In fact, as others were committing this very sin against him, as they were killing him and nailing to them to the cross, and as the thieves on either side of him were mocking him, what does Jesus say? In Luke 23, 34, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Christ forgave even as he was being beaten, even as he was being murdered, even as, as he was being killed. So here's, here is the good news in this story, in this commandment, that though you and I, we, we are murderers in our heart, we are, we are hateful in our heart. We might look like a coffee shop on the outside, but we're an underground gambling establishment on the inside. Here is the good news, that Christ keeps the law for us. So even though we deserve the curse of the law, and he deserves the blessing for keeping the law, he was cursed and we are blessed. This glorious exchange is what is at the root of the gospel, that he was condemned so that we could be justified. And he was uh, declared guilty so that we could be cleared of all sin. And he died so that we might have life. This is what 1 Thessalonians says. It says, Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Christ redeems us from this law. And if you don't believe that, just look to the scriptures and see the stories of men and women who have broken this law and found redemption. Just look to the scriptures. I mean, Moses himself, the man whom God is giving this law to, to give to Israel, himself was a murderer. And King David, the man after God's own heart, uh, had uh, one of his servants murdered, one of his soldiers murdered so that he could steal his wife. And he found forgiveness. And the Apostle Paul, who before he became a Christian, took and rounded up Christians and led them to their death, he himself was saved. You are not too far gone for the grace of God. And you can be washed white as snow. You see, this, enemy, this law might be an enemy because it exposes me and it shows me to be who I am. And yet, if this law is my enemy, Christ is my Savior. Because he takes the penalty, he stands in the gap, he bears the punishment for me so that I can be redeemed, so that I can be saved. Now, this law also teaches us how we can follow Christ better. 
Because now that we have been forgiven, now that we have suffered, uh, now that we have been cleansed and renewed, we don't have to keep the law so that God will love us, but rather we keep the law because God loves us. We don't have to keep the law to earn God's blessing, to earn God's generosity, to earn God's salvation, but rather we keep the law because we have been given it. We, we keep the law because Christ kept it first. And so his, his grace is working in our hearts to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what, First or that's what Philippians 2 says. So we can keep the law because Christ is working in us. So how do we keep, how do we keep this law? How can we do this? Well, let me give a number of recommendations. We need to, in our um, lives, have regular rhythms and patterns where we do things for others that has no benefit for us right? So some people in our church give every single week time and energy and talent to serve for Operation Love, a great ministry here in town that is, uh, helps get people who are um, on the streets up off their feet and helps those who are poor, and they just they do a really good job with that. That's a great way to do that. Not the only way, but that's a great ministry to be involved in. The, the point of this is being involved in a ministry or, or something that will allow you to regularly, habitually train yourself to do good for others, to help uh, dignify others. There's a number of different ministries and places around town. If, you, if Operation Love doesn't work for you, let me know. Love to find something that would work for you that we can help get you plugged in. Because as you're doing that, it's kind of like you're going to the gym and you're working out and you're training yourself to do good for others. So we all need to have places in our lives where we do good for others that has absolutely no direct uh, benefit for us. Secondly, secondly, um, we need to uh, learn how to keep this internally, right? We need to learn how to keep this internally, not just externally. So how do we do that? How do we train ourselves? So we're training ourselves to do good for others, and yet on the inside, we need to learn how to train ourselves not to hate others. Well, uh, let me give a number of suggestions. Um, the first thing is this. When you find the urge in your heart to be angry with someone, when you find the urge in your heart, the best thing to do is just to start by admitting, I'm angry. How many of you have ever been in a fight, or maybe you're the person who does this, um, and they, someone says, why are you so angry? And you say, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. Not that I've ever done that. My wife's in junior church, so she doesn't know. Um, I would say that's probably a bad thing to do because you're pretending like this doesn't apply to you at that moment, right? So even if you have to start by saying, I am frustrated instead of angry, whatever, the word doesn't matter, just be honest. Just start by being honest and saying, I am angry. I am frustrated. I am upset. I am furious. I am killing someone on the inside right now. Just start by admitting that. And then ask yourself, why? Ask yourself, why, why am I so angry? Why am I just holding on to this? Why, why am I so furious and frustrated and upset? Maybe you have a good reason. And, and maybe you don't. You start by asking why. And then here, this is absolutely key. You've got to do this, otherwise this whole exercise has been for naught. You need to look at that other person and you need to say, Christ died for them too. 
Christ died for them too. Christ died for me, but he also died for that person. So if, if Christ died for me, I have no right to not uh, forgive others. And Christ also forgave them. See, if you never bring this burden, this hatred, this anger, this fury to the cross, you will hold on to it and it will fester and it will grow in your soul like, like kudzu vine or like, a, like ivy that just grows and strangles a tree. It will just grow in your soul and you'll never be able to get rid of it. It doesn't matter if you look like a coffee shop on the outside if you are an underground gambling establishment on the inside. Here's what I want to promise you. If Christ is working in you, you can do this. You can do this. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult to let go of all the things that have been done to you over the years. I know it's hard. But if you have been forgiven, you can forgive others. It'll take time. It'll take work. It'll take energy. It will take tears. It will take emotion. But you can do this. Uh, this reminds me of a story I, I heard last year, and I verified this week to make sure it was true. Um, when the uh, Episcopalian Church in America started to drift away from the Scriptures, started to drift away from the Bible. Um, there were some uh, Anglicans who still loved Jesus, who still loved the Bible, who wanted, they wanted their church to be redeemed. And so in the Anglican church, you can't start a, a, a new church without the okay of a bishop. So they were looking for a bishop who would help them out, and they couldn't find one until finally they heard that the Archbishop of Rwanda would, would possibly help. So they go to Rwanda to try to get help from this bishop so they could start this, this new church. And they get to Rwanda, and, and the archbishop there won't see them. And instead, he has his aide take them. And they go to all these different sites in Rwanda where the genocide had happened in the 90s. It took them to all the mass graves, all the killing fields. He took them, they, they took them to all the refugee camps, and he, and he had them tour the country. And after they got done, they came to him, and the archbishop saw them. And the archbishop said, I... I understand that you today have come to ask for my help. I said, yes, we have. And he said, you know, when the genocide was happening here, we petitioned the United Nations for help, and none came. And we also reached out to the United States for help, and there was nothing. And then we asked the American church for help, and there was no answer. He said, you today have come to ask for my help. I will give it to you. This was someone who had every right to be upset, every right to be angry, every right to hold on to a grudge. And instead, he chose to lay that down at the cross. In fact, if you were to look into Archbishop Collini's words, he would say, I have been forgiven for far more than I ever forgave anybody else from. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today knowing that there is, in many of us, there, there's just this bitterness. Maybe we didn't even notice that the sink was dripping. 
Maybe we didn't even notice that sand was slowly piling up. And yet as we look in our heart, there's just this obstacle to loving others. There's just this hatred in our soul. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and blow that sand away, that your Holy Spirit would come and dry that puddle up. Father, we know that we have been forgiven much. We know that you have lavished and shared your grace with us. God, would you help us to share your grace with others? Would you help us to extend that same forgiveness to others that we have received? Would you help us to share that same mercy with others that we have been shown? God, we don't want to be people who are hateful. We don't want to be people who are constantly committing murder in our hearts, and yet it's so hard sometimes. God, I I know what it's like to be cynical and to be frustrated and to be pessimistic. God, I, I also know the healing power of your grace in those moments. God, would you help us to give that same grace that you've given us to others? Father, I pray that you would use your word this morning to change our hearts and to make us more fit for the kingdom of God and to prepare us for the day where we will come to those who are formerly our enemies and we will call them our brothers. And to come to those who are formerly our our foes and call them our friends. And come to the man who we formerly crucified and call him our Lord. Father, we look forward to that day where we will see you and we will know you even as we are known. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask that we stand as we end our